Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is New Books in Science Fiction. I'm Rob Wolf. And this is the Inadmissible Future Trajectory edition of the podcast that brings you conversations with writers of science and speculative fiction. My guest today is Tom Sweaterlich, author of The Gone World, which tells the story of a Navy investigator who uses time travel to solve crimes. In this particular case, she's using time travel to find a young woman who has been kidnapped by one or maybe more people who murdered the young woman's family. But while the fast plot and compelling characters hold your attention, the gone world also explores fundamental questions about consciousness, identity, and reality. The Gone World was a Goodreads Choice Award nominee, and director Neil Blomkamp, who made District 9 and Elysium, calls The Gone World his favorite book, which I suppose explains why he's working on the film version after urging Fox to buy the film rights. Tom Sweaterlich is on the line with me now from his home in Pennsylvania. Hey, Tom, I'm really excited to have you on New Books and Science Fiction. Hi, I'm excited to be here on the pod well, <laughs> I heard you say that in an earlier episode, and I thought that sounded sounded pretty cool to be on the pod. Well, thanks. I have to say I got the idea from a podcast called Pod Save America. Why not save a syllable if you can? Podcast, <laughs> pod, maybe just puh at some point. <laughs> but at any rate, it's good to be here. Thank you. Yes, I'm very glad to have you. So let's start with the hero of your story, Shannon Moss, and her work. What can you tell our listeners about Shannon so that they appreciate her unique perspective and skills? Okay, so Shannon, uh, Shannon Moss is a, a, a young woman who grew up in Cannonsburg, Pennsylvania, which is about uh, 45 minutes away from Pittsburgh. And she, when the novel begins, she is an NCIS special agent, so a Naval Criminal Investigative Services special agent, just like the TV show um, that's very popular. Uh, but in this book, uh, part of the, the world building is that the Navy has created a time travel technology. So there's a, a secret group of NCIS agents who are able to use 
that time travel technology to go forward into the future or a future, one of many plausible, plausible futures in order to basically investigate cases um, that they're essentially stuck on in the present. Um, so the Gone World uh, starts off with a, a murder investigation and a search for a missing girl that Shannon quickly realizes she needs to start investigating this case in the future to basically find out what might have happened to her and then bring bring that information back to the present to apply it in, in real time. And she brings to it a very unique experience, I think, having suffered a trauma as a teenager, which haunts her throughout the story, and also her own experience as a time traveler as part of this Naval Space Command. That's right. Um, so when she was a teenager, she had a, a, a very close friend named Courtney Gim, who was murdered when they were uh, 15. And when the book starts out, uh, Shannon is woken up in the middle of the night with a, a telephone call saying that there's a, a murder that she needs to investigate. And it turns out that that murder has taken place in the childhood home of Courtney Gim. So when she, she shows up at the murder scene, she's both reliving her past as well as launching into the, the investigation that's happening in the present. And that's, um, for Shannon and her point of view, it's a, just this terrible and harrowing coincidence, but that's one of the first instances of, of strange things that time does in the book. It sort, of, it sort of loops back on itself quite a bit. Right, exactly. It kind of sets up, well, there's a lot of mirror imagery in the book and duplication and repetition, and I guess you're right. That's one of the first instances, so it's sort of a foreshadowing of a kind of repetition that over time starts to reveal deeper truths. I hope the book works like that. I, try, I tried to think in those terms, not only just in plot, but also some characterization and even the structure of the book, um, how many sections there are, for instance, and, and what happens in each section, how they play against each other. I was really trying for this kind of, uh, this kind of endless echoing that would happen as, as you read it. Um, so I, so I, hope, I hope it does feel like that as someone's reading the book. Well, one of the important concepts, and you sort of hinted at it in your explanation of how she conducts her investigations in the future, is that the futures she's visiting are just possible futures. Hence the term or the acronym IFT, which is short for Inadmissible Future Trajectory. I wondered if you could explain that concept. Sure. So so the idea is that people in the book are operating under the belief that they are existing in a present, and the present is real. The time travel technology they have doesn't allow them to go backward in time. They can't go to the past, but they can go to the future in one, in one of an infinite number of possible futures. Uh, so every time they go to a future, it's essentially different. But they all, every future that you see grows out of the conditions of the present. And... That, that, was, um, that was an idea I had pretty early on in terms of the, the mechanics of the novel. Um, but that phrase, that inadmissible future trajectory, um, you know, that came just sort of thinking through what the world of the novel would be. I, 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 like, those, I like books where you know, there might be a, a central science fiction premise, but then you can imagine the world outside of the novel, too. And, um, and so I was thinking just about military uses, legal uses, um, of this technology and, you know, questions like could an investigator gather information about a crime that hasn't happened and actually use it to prosecute someone? 
And that specific question never really comes up in the book, but it did allow me to think about how, how people might actually view court cases, uh, you know, criminal investigations and court cases and what an investigator would need in order to prove someone's, someone's guilt. And um, yeah, so I, I came up with that phrase and this, this whole idea that, that a lot of the information they gather can't actually be used in a court of law that, in terms of a prosecution, but it can be used in terms of investigations. And I had a lot of fun uh, sort of teasing out all the loose ends, even though a lot of it doesn't apply directly to the story at hand. Right. But it makes a lot of sense that it would be inadmissible because if you're gathering evidence from only a possible future, it's not necessarily conclusive. You may be picking up clues that are actually misleading or something. So one of the seeds for the book, one of the very earliest things that I had a conversation about, uh, my my brother-in-law is is an active NCIS um, special agent. And so years and years ago, before I'd started writing, I was thinking about time travel, and we were having lunch together. And so I, you know, I just asked him, you know, I've been thinking a lot about time travel. How would, how would that affect your job? And he's a really good storyteller. He's a really thoughtful guy. And his answer was, was interesting. It eventually became the seed of the book, which was um, a lot of his investigations are essentially solved when a victim or someone who knows a criminal basically tell the investigators what happened and why. Um, but if people don't talk, then the investigation becomes very difficult and sometimes impossible to solve. And so he was, you know, just musing that if, if he could go t- forward in time, he could talk to a lot of the witnesses after the emotions have cooled and they might be more willing to talk and then come back to the present with that information in hand and, you know, try to find out the truth of the matter. Um, which I thought was just a great mechanism for a novel, you know, how exploring changing relationships over time. Um, and then one of the first thoughts I had was like, oh, it'd be cool if you could go to the future and maybe you, you learn where someone had thrown a, a gun away because, you know, it had been found in the intervening years. And uh, even though you couldn't necessarily come back and say, Here, here's the gun that you used to, you know, kill this person, you could come back and and stake out the place in the bushes where you know that the gun that the gun's going to show up and then find it in real time. And uh, I thought that those things were kind of interesting and, and, and then how those decisions would affect the present conditions that future future futures are built off of. It just it sort of started seeming like there was a, a lot of interesting world that could that could spin out from that that premise. And I, it, it was a lot of uh, a lot of fun thinking through those things. Well, time travel seems like one of those things that's super popular in science fiction, but it's also super hard to grasp if you really want to follow it to its end. These inherent contradictions, the idea of of things branching out and little things having big effects over time. The book really dives into a lot of different ideas. I'm not sure how many of those are actually made up. There are Fibonacci numbers. I know that's something you referred to, but there are a lot of other ideas that I think are yours only, like quantum tunneling, nanoparticles, and thin space. But through it all, I feel like you're really searching for some truth, some kernel of truth for this thing that might be inherently unknowable. Well, thank you. I, I, um, well, so, so my father-in-law, he, he passed away a few years ago, but he was a uh, quantum physicist for the Department of Defense. And he's a brilliant man. And we had a lot of uh, great conversations about physics. 
so a lot of those conversations sort of pointed me towards certain concepts to explore as I was thinking about time travel. As far as the book goes, yeah, it is a mixture of of real science, uh, as much as I'm able to understand it, and things that are sort of real science adjacent, <laughs> maybe. Um, you know, if, if I had to invent a term, I tried to make it so that it stems from an actual principle I was reading about. Um, and, and then when I was finished with the book, I, I did send uh, some of the science sections to a physics professor at Carnegie Mellon uh, to have him, you know, read over it. And, I, and what, I, what I asked him was, um, you know, I asked for any comments he had, but in terms of the science, I wasn't exactly looking for true because it's all fiction, but at least at least plausible. Um, and he did have a couple changes that I that I was able to make uh, for the book. But yeah, it's an interesting thing in terms of science and science fiction because we're we're crafting fiction. We're writing about impossibilities, but part of the sleight of hand is to make it seem real. Um, and uh, that's a that's an interesting thing. And, and versus you know all kinds of questions like do I really want to spend a page describing something or would a reader get it if I named it something sciencey and moved on? And uh, so a lot of those, those uh, questions came up as I was writing quite a bit because you don't want to drag down the, the thriller plot um, with too much science, but at the same time, the whole book is, is sort of built on a bulwark of science. And um, yeah, there was an interesting balancing act I, I had. One of the ideas that comes up that plays an important role in the story is something called lensing. And I was hoping you could explain what that is. So at some point, I forget when, but at some point in the process of writing, I started thinking about if you could go to the future, but it's only a possible future, what makes that future possible? And so the answer for the book became the observer, the person who is observing that future is the person who makes that future possible. That ties in with some, you know, a layman's understanding of quantum physics, which is where, of a certain interpretation of quantum physics, which is certainly my, my level of expertise, just trying to grapple with a lot of these very you know, big concepts. But once I, once I started thinking that way, I started wondering how much of a person's psychology then would affect that future that we're seeing. So as Shannon goes through a future, would reality essentially warp around her memories, her emotions, her experience of reality? And then there are certain questions that came up, such as what then would be objective reality to her versus what would only be present in that future because she is looking at it. And so for the book, I, I named that phenomenon lensing, uh, that things sort of lensed around her. I, I think in the novel, one of the first things she explicitly notices about lensing is something very, it's a, just a small detail. She's in the future and she rents a, an apartment to stay in. And she, you know, it's a typical two bedroom apartment, but the kitchen is exactly the kitchen she remembers that her grandma had. And so she realizes that this, it, this is a matter of lensing, that that kitchen is somehow not objective reality, but it's, it exists because she is looking at it. And once that, that concept is introduced in the book, more and more examples of lensing, many of which she doesn't even realize are happening, I hope become present to the reader. And so there's a little bit of a, 
that mirror, that funhouse mirror effect kind of goes on a little bit that a lot of times the reader will pick up on, but the when the characters aren't. If you're going into the future in search for a kind of truth, but you yourself are warping things, maybe you can't fulfill your mission and are in fact undermining it. Absolutely. And the whole plot of the book, I think, rests on that, that observation you make. Um, so that's very true. In fact, one of the things about the book that I was very conscious of was that a lot of characters express beliefs about the nature of the universe, but in almost all cases, those beliefs are proved incorrect by the novel itself. Um, so there's a lot of, you know, and that's just something for the reader to pick up, pick up on, I suppose. It's not a, a narrator saying that these people are wrong, but um, one of the things about this book is that all the characters are grasping for some interpretation to hold on to, uh, but those interpretations are, aren't very adequate and reality around them is very slippery. There is a notion, though, and they hold firmly to this idea that there's something called terra firma, the idea that there's this one true time, the present from which the time travelers depart. They may be in some kind of alternate theoretical potential future, but when they come back, they're in a place that is completely real, and that's, that's their belief. That is their belief, yes. That's what their entire program is based off of, is that belief that terra firma itself is real. But especially, especially as we get towards the second half of the book, that, that notion starts slipping away also, revealing, I think, a different shape of a universe or picture of a universe than what the characters have been interpreting for most of their lives. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. There are a lot of interesting implications to the concepts you have developed, like the idea that in one of these potential futures, if someone realizes that Shannon or someone else is a time traveler, they would then realize that they are a fabrication. They exist only because this time traveler has come to their present, their present. There's a story, an anecdote, referring to some past time traveler who gets basically kidnapped and held hostage by someone because they know if that if she leaves, their their world will vanish. That's right. Yeah. So, so from the point of view of of the ter- of people in terra firma who watch a time traveler go, they the time traveler essentially disappears and reappears very quickly. And the anecdote is that a young agent disappeared, reappeared, and got off the time travel ship as a very old person. And 
this was sort of startling. I mean, there's a lot in the book about people's ages and relative ages and how they appear to people and what's going on. But this sort of transformation from young person to old person in the blink of an eye is, is startling. And the reason was because that person had met someone who figured out they were a time traveler. And once a time traveler leaves this future possibility that they themselves have created, people in that future realize that as soon as that, that time traveler leaves, their entire existence will just blink out. It'll be nothing. So what can happen, the danger sometimes for people that are in the know, so to speak, they'll, they'll kidnap or capture a time traveler and just hold them sort of in denial um, of, of their own mortality, essentially. The longer you can hold the time traveler, the longer your universe will continue to exist. And so that's what happened in that, for that one particular agent. And that's something that's on Shannon's mind uh, when she travels to not, not tell, not tell uh, very many people about what, what's really going on uh, because the more people that find out who she is and what she's doing, the more dangerous it becomes for her. It's interesting because we don't really know what happens to those futures, right? Maybe they're still there. No, we we don't know. There there are a lot. I, I'd really tried to play with um, the notion of belief systems, or, uh, not even systems, but w- what do we believe? Why do we believe it? And how how confident are we that those beliefs are true and that was that was also that was a very early idea that came with the sort of generation of this book because i was reading uh dante's inferno and in, in it there's uh when he's in the sixth circle the, the circle of the heretics he meets um he meets one of the 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 souls down there and and basically the punishment for heretics is that they can see far off into the future but can't see the present in, in terms of what's happening on Earth. And so Dante comes strolling along, and, the, and this, this guy jumps out of his grave, and he says, oh, I need news about my son. You're friends with my son because I don't know what his life is like right now. I can see all the way till the end of time, but I can't see what his life is like right now. And so that was just this perfect literary precedent of what I was hoping to write about in this novel in terms of the mechanism of time travel. But that also put the, the idea of, of heresy and belief in, into the book. Um, so that was, that was very early on when I was sort of grappling with Dante there a little bit. And uh, that became a theme, I, I think. I spent a lot of time thinking about that, uh, those questions about characters' beliefs and what matches to reality and what do they reject and what do they believe and, and what are the consequences about that. So you're absolutely correct. Um, all the characters believe that these other existences aren't happening or aren't really true once they leave, but that is a definite open-ended question. And another important idea are echoes. Maybe you can explain what they are, but they also raise questions about what's real, what isn't, what's primary, what's just a potential. That's right. And it, it actually feeds into your previous question. Um, what are the implications of, of the echoes? So, so an echo is essentially when a time traveler goes forward into a future, they don't find themselves because the, the future is predicated on the conditions of the present. And in, in the present, that person had left on a time travel journey. So, so Shannon never goes forward and sees herself. But she sees everyone else. Uh, she sees her colleagues and friends have grown older by a number of years. And there's this thor- sort of uh, these past cases are sometimes referenced where, well, what, what would happen then if you went into the future grabbed someone, put them on your ship, and brought them back to terra firma? What would happen to them? 
And the answer for the world of the book is what they call an echo. It's a double, a double person. You, their ages are usually different. Their physical appearances are different. Um, but you could take someone from a future and bring them to the present. And that in and of itself sort of like, you know, you, f- you follow the different pathways about what the implications are for that just in general in terms of a legal system, et cetera. But in the book, that becomes a very important plot element of what, what some people are doing um, in terms of crossing timelines and, and capturing people and, and what they're hoping to accomplish. Well, there's a sense or an implication, or maybe it's even stated outright, that echoes are somehow not the real person, that they are less human and, you know, really raising fundamental questions about consciousness because for all practical matters, they, they seem to be identical, except that they may have had some different experiences. Yeah, and I, I think that comes up in the novel in a couple different ways. Shannon has a very emotional conversation with someone who is pretty much begging her to take him back with her. And she flat out tells him it, it wouldn't work like that because you'd show up and you'd be there. And the person that you think you are would already be living the life you think you want. So that 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 happens. Um, another thing that happens with the echoes is that we, through some, some characters that, that, that are introduced, we realize that people who exist in a possible future themselves have been able to time travel and create other forking paths. And so ostensibly, Shannon, when she time travels, believes that not only is the future that she herself is observing will blink away, but also every other connected path that has been carved out through time travel based on that future as well. And so there are futures of futures of possible futures that kind of get looked at and and referenced and that sort of play a role as, as to how things are, are playing out in the present for her. It sounds very complicated, but I, I hope that, <laughs> I, but, but I hope that reading it, it's, it's, you know, she, you're following sort of a, a murder mystery investigation. So um, a lot of these ideas are, are constantly focused back on what Shannon is investigating. And, you know, so it all, t- it all ties into her. So I, I hope it's not, it doesn't maybe sound quite as ungraspable. <laughs> it's talking about futures and futures and futures. There are many fascinating things about the book. And one of them are these inherently complex ideas, which are fun to explore both in writing and in conversation. But I certainly don't want to give the impression that the book is anything but a fast-moving story about a woman searching for killers. And also, there's a major plot about really the end of the universe, potentially, that's been seen in the future and seems to be coming closer. So there's a lot of heart-pounding things going on in the story. And as we said before, your placement of some of these ideas is, is fairly subtle, and you don't go down deep into elaborate explanations, but there's just enough there to trigger, I think, some of this pondering, if you want to engage in it, about what does this mean, and what would happen if we went to the future, all the things that we've been discussing. Yeah, and that's, um, that, was, that was a fun way to, to try to write, which was to, to have this you know, central murder mystery thriller plot and a, and a cool character um, that you're reading about, but then trying to trying to like make <laughs> make the edges of her world suggestive to a reader that that a reader would know exactly what I was talking about and referring to kind of without me ever having to really dive deep to explain it. And 
there's some times where no, I have to. I have like I have to explain this certain concept so that the plot makes sense. But there's other times I really had fun just saying, I wonder how little I can talk about this, but still communicate the full <laughs> the full impact of the notion. How did you go about building the novel? Did you have all the concepts and plot all at once in the beginning, or was it an iterative process, kind of almost like the different future trajectories that you describe in the book? You sort of test out one way and another way. Yeah, it was more like that, for sure. I would start writing, and I'd write a murder scene and say, okay, so she's going to investigate this murder, and then you'd get to the point where she has to time travel, and you'd, you'd kind of sit back and think okay, now I have to figure out how time travel could work. <laughs> so so you, everything goes on hold um, while you dive deep into just all kinds of reading and trying to find, you know, different plausible ways for ship building, engine building, time travel mechanics, what could work, what, what, what concepts do they play into, what do I have to read about to figure this stuff out. And then once you kind of have a working idea, you come back to the book and start writing but then you find that, oh, the, the science fiction part now changes everything that I thought was going to happen, which was exciting. That's a, like a very exciting part about the writing. But yeah, it was very much st stop and go like that. Um, and then once you had the full arc of the book uh, beginning to end, then it settled into a much more traditional kind of rewriting editing process. I think a lot of time travel stories are playful and fun. Your story is much darker I think, because, of course, it is about a murder investigation, and it also brings in a plot about the end of the world and the end of the universe. And when these echoes start appearing, there are some people who start killing their duplicates and triplicates. Things get dark really fast in the gone world. Yeah, the gone world is dark. I, I sometimes think of it as uh, like Silence of the Lambs in space. That would be my my shorthand for it. So it's, it's that kind of tone. And my first book was dark too. They're, they're both sort of very violent thrillers. Yeah. I think that just, you know, that just came from probably what I enjoy reading. My favorite science fiction writers are like the new wave writers from the late sixties and seventies, or even slightly earlier, like a JG Ballard, the atrocity exhibition is one of my favorite books. And then as far as like mystery novels, um, I really like, you know, Raymond Chandler, um, and even though they're sort of older books, it's, you know, he, you know, created pretty much created that whole idea of almost like the, the you know, the gallant knight in an urban setting, um, where the world's gone wrong around him. And as he's trying to find the truth of something, but I think, uh, one of the total defining moments of my, of my creative life was seeing, uh, the movie children of men when it came out. You know, I, I saw that movie in the theater, not really knowing what it would be like. And that was one of the few times I've, I finished a movie and then immediately bought a ticket to see it again in the theater right after um, sort of a back to back viewing. And I've seen it so many times. And that movie really crystallized the kind of writing I wanted to do, the kind of imagery I was interested in. Um, I think it's influenced a lot by William Gibson and Philip K. Dick. Uh, but, yeah, that's that's definitely where I'm coming from as a writer. And Alfonso Cuaron, he was the director. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. He's kind of amazingly versatile. His films are all so different, and they're all amazing in different ways. Yeah, yeah, they are. He's, he's incredible, for sure. 
Well, speaking of movies, why don't we talk about the movie version of The Gone World? Okay. I know Neil Blomkamp has signed on to direct the film. Have things been moving forward? And do you anticipate playing a role in its development? <laughs> well, okay. So I, I thought you were going to ask if I was going to play a role <laughs> in the movie. I thought I, I will be Shannon Moss in the movie. Yeah, things, things are moving forward. Um, so Hollywood is, uh, is slow. But, but yeah, definitely things are moving forward. It was in sort of interesting timing. So if you Google Neil Blomkamp, um, a lot of things that come up are his, his involvement or not involvement, this sort of question about whether or not he was going to make a sequel to Alien. And it was right around that time that he read my book. It was in manuscript form, essentially, at that point. And he read it and was looking for a new project and really responded to it. Uh, so this was back in the fall of 2015, uh, so over three years ago now, and he and Fox bought the option to the book, and he immediately started working on it right away. And yeah, over the years, we've been in, in pretty constant communication. We, we we met each other and really hit it off. He's a super cool guy. And I've been involved at one point officially, um, but, you know, sort of just like, doing a lot, just talking about with him about the concepts of the book and the plot and, and helping him, you know, figure out what, like, for instance, what could be cut from the book, but still have the rest of the, the plot make sense. And um, so he's been working on a screenplay and yeah, I think they're, I think they're, they're pretty close. He has a screenplay that he loves. Um, so, you know, you, you never know what, ha what will happen uh, with the, with the big studios or if a movie will actually happen or not, but it's been a really exciting to get to know him and, uh, yeah, I'm I'm curious to see what will happen. And what does it feel like seeing your book, which has a lot of complex ideas and a lot going on in it, essentially pared down to make it a successful movie, which is, of course, a different art form. So just because it's simpler doesn't make it in any way worse. It's just different. But how does that feel to see that happen? And how do you even go about doing that and making those suggestions to pare down this, this work that you've devoted so much of your time and thought to. Yeah, well, there's a there's a couple ways I, I approach it. First of all, um, exactly what you said that the movies and books are different art forms, and I, I'm a big believer in that. And I, I have been for quite a while, just in general. Um, I love film. I love movies so much that I I realize that there are always differences between movie adaptations and the books. And you and you think a lot of times about Stephen King and The Shining and how Kubrick made his film, and Stephen King famously doesn't like the Kubrick version. Um, but for me, being a fan of both, it's, that's fascinating to me to see what, what changes and decisions were made in terms of Kubrick making his film or Stephen King writing his novel. Um, so right from the beginning, I was just carte blanche. I'm a huge fan of Neil Blomkamp. I'm dying to know what he would do with this book. So that was just exciting to watch us from a creative standpoint. Um, but, you know, Neil's movies are very um, thought-provoking science fiction films. So at no point was he ever interested in trying to, to dumb down the book or cut out ideas for the, you know, and the, for the sake of, you know, an action scene or something like that. Um, in fact, I think what interested him were those ideas. And so he was, he was always very interested in the character of Shannon Moss and the complex ideas that surround her and this novel. Um, so rather than a, a process of, of watching someone take ideas out, it became a fascinating process of how can we keep everything in, um, which has been fantastic to, to watch 
that process happen. Um, it's been very cool. Um, so yeah, so for me, it's just been just very exciting, <laughs> I suppose. Um, and then, you know, just, but film, but film language and, and book language are entirely different. Um, now when I sit down to write a book, I try to make it cinematic. Um, I don't try to write it like a screenplay. That's what I'm saying, but I try to make it, you know, I, I, I can't write a scene unless I can myself envision it sort of like how it would play out as a movie. So I think there, there are a lot of scenes in the book that's, that can almost be directly translated to a film in a sense. So I think, so I think that helps, um, sometimes, um, but the, but the main thing is the length. I mean, to really film the gone world scene by scene, it would have to be like a 10 hour movie or something. So that's, that's been the interesting thing. Like wh- wh- what characters collapse into each other, what scenes collapse into each other. Did it ever come up uh, as a prestige TV series? I mean, 10 hours sounds perfect for a 10 part <laughs> first season. That's true. Um, uh, not really. I mean, I think, um, I, I, I don't I don't know if Neil's ever been interested in, in doing TV or not, to be quite honest. But I, he he thinks in terms of the feature length film presentation um, is is what our conversations have always been around. So so I, I, don't, I don't think that's ever come up. But it's uh, but but I, I like that I like that I like that those uh, larger format television series exist because they can explore sort of uh, you know bigger worlds and ideas through television. It's been it's been fun getting into some some shows. And then you could be the showrunner. I love that term. <laughs> showrunner. Well, I'd be a terrible showrunner, but... <laughs> it just sounds so... It's just cool, you know? Showrunner. You're, like, in charge of everything. It, it's true. <laughs> well, I can't wait to see the movie version of The Gone World, and uh, and I want to thank you so much for coming on New Books and Science Fiction. Well, thanks for having me, and it was great talking with you. I've been speaking with Tom Sweaterlich, author of The Gone World, which is published by Putnam. It came out in 2018, but the paperback will be out any day in February. Please subscribe to New Books in Science Fiction and leave a review in the Apple Store. Your reviews help bring attention to the show and help others find us. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com. The editor-in-chief and founder of the New Books Network is Marshall Poe, and the editor is Leanne Wilson. I'm Rob Wolf, author of The Alternate Universe. Visit me at robwolf.net or on Twitter at robwolfbooks. Thanks for your support. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.